I'd like to invite you to join me in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we are going to uh, attempt a slightly Herculean task this morning and getting through all of the first 21 verses in Acts 2. If you are using the blue ESV Bible and the seatbacks in front of you, you can find our text beginning on page 909, going over to 910. The title of our sermon is, I Will Pour Out My Spirit, and the keywords for our worshipers in training are Pentecost, Spirit, and Salvation. So far in this book of Acts, we have seen Luke introduce a number of major themes uh, in chapter 1. Uh, we won't rehearse all of those now. I, I just want to note that of, of highest significance for us this morning uh, are Jesus' words to his apostles in chapter 1, verses 5 and 8. And in 1 8, he, he tells them uh, that they would receive, in short order, the Holy Spirit with power. And in 1 5, he tells them that they would receive the, the promised baptism of the Holy Spirit. Both of which, both statements anticipate what we find here in Acts chapter 2. Now the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 raises a lot of intriguing and important questions. And it's easy to get bogged down in answering all of those questions. Uh, Ronnie and I were talking about this earlier, just in the, the internet age, the resources at our disposal. It is so easy to, to go on, on this rabbit trail or that rabbit trail and to, to get all of the, the, the goody we can out of a text. And, and that's good and right in its proper place. But in a, a sermon, you want a sermon to, to preach a bullet, to have a main point. And so... I want to make sure that what we are focused on this morning as we look at Acts chapter 2, 1 through 21, is the thing that Luke is focused on in writing it. Why does he write this? Why does he write it this way? What is the thing he wants us to grasp? There are many questions we could ask and answer, and admittedly there is, uh, we could do that here. But I don't think that would be the most use, uh, effective use of, of our time as we go through Acts. And so I want to set it up this way. Twice in Acts chapter 1, we saw Luke connect the pouring out of the Spirit with the kingdom of God. In 1, 3, uh, and 5, and in then 1, 6, and 8, we see Luke connect the pouring out of the Spirit with the kingdom of God. And so, what we need to understand, heading into this uh, record of what happened on this day on Pentecost... Uh, we need to get that the pouring out of the Spirit is ultimately an eschatological work of the ascended Christ where He inaugurates His kingdom on earth. Lots of big words there, but essentially what happens here is about Christ and about what He is doing now as the ascended Lord of the universe. What He had promised His disciples, what they were waiting on, this is a work of the Lord Jesus And it has to do with his kingdom, with the inauguration of his kingdom, which began at his coming. And so we need to keep the main thing 
the main thing. And so the focus of the sermon this morning is going to be on how the coming of the Spirit and the kingdom of God intersect. So in Acts 1.5, which we didn't talk, we looked at 1.5 a few weeks ago, but we didn't talk about this aspect of it. But I want to mention a few things about it now before we get into Acts chapter 2. Jesus tells his disciples in that verse, he says, wait for the promise of the Father. He says that they should do that which they had heard from Jesus himself. That John had baptized with water, but they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So this, of course, recalls what John the Baptist says in Luke 3.16. He's asked uh, if he's the Messiah. He says, nope, it's not me. I baptize with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What's crucial to see here is that John describes the baptizing work of the Messiah as a matter of judgment. He says it will be a clearing of the threshing floor where the wheat and the chaff are separated. And so the baptism of the Messiah where he pours out his spirit, is done with, you see, the spirit and and fire. And these together bring blessing to the grain, as it were, and destruction to the chaff. Richard Gaffin makes this point that we need not miss as we head into these verses. He says, whatever may be the full significance of the fulfillment of John's prophecy on the day of Pentecost... We are bound to recognize that Pentecost is fundamentally a matter of judgment. It is part of the end-time judicial transaction of God. So I want to read these verses with that in mind, outline them, and then we will get to work. Luke writes, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us, in his own language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mockingly said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it 
is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So we're going we're gonna to unpack these verses under three headings. In verses 1 through 4, we will see Luke describe the coming of the, the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Second, then, in verses 5 through 13, we will see the incredulous response of many of the Jews present at the time. And third, in verses 14 through 21, we will see Peter explain this, or really, he he begins to explain because the sermon continues on in verses 22 and following, but he begins to explain the significance of what has taken place, particularly in light of Old Testament explanation. So, what happened? What was the response, and what is Peter's explanation? Look with me in the first place, then, in verses 1 through 4, where we see Luke describe the Spirit's coming on the day of Pentecost. In Exodus 34, God had commanded Israel to observe the Feast of Weeks, uh, which was at the beginning, it was the beginning of the grain harvest. And then in Leviticus 23, God gives further instructions. Uh, regarding this feast. It was to begin the morning after Passover and last for seven weeks, culminating on the Sabbath, 50 days later, which is where we get the term Pentecost from, which is Greek for 50th. Uh, the, The observance of Pentecost was instituted so that the Jewish people would recognize that their entire dependence, that they would recognize that they were entirely dependent upon God for all of their material prosperity. Now, in the, uh, around the time of the intertestamental period between the two, the Old and the New Testaments, it came to be connected particularly with the journey from Egypt to Sinai, where God gave Israel the law, which that journey was also, uh, we also understand that to have probably taken place uh, in about 50 days. So Pentecost, by the time of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ... When the disciples are here waiting for the promised Holy Spirit, Pentecost emphasized not only God's, um, the way that he would provide benevolently for Israel, but it also emphasized the fact that he was their covenant Lord. And so that's, that's what Pentecost was in very general terms. But a question that's interesting that I think is important is, is where does this occur? Now, the truth is it's, it's very hard to be dogmatic about the location that these events described in Acts 2. It's hard to be dogmatic about where these things occurred, other than to say that they occurred in Jerusalem. But since Pentecost was one of three annual feasts that had to be observed at the temple, I find it most likely that the place where they were gathered in, uh, in verse 1, or the house where they were sitting in verse 2, it's most likely the temple. 
There are a few other there are a few reasons to think this. First, the upper room where the, the apostles were dwelling, in which uh, we see that in one thirteen, where it says the apostles were the place that they were staying. It's, it's unlikely that a private dwelling in ancient Israel would have been large enough for not only the 11 or those who were with them, but the, the 120 who were with them or the thousands that gathered there because there's 3,000 people converted at the end of this chapter. So it's unlikely that it's a private dwelling, but the temple courts would have been large enough. Second, when Peter says down in verse uh, 15 here of chapter 2, he says it's only the third hour of the day, which would have been 9 a.m., and he's referencing there the hour of prayer, whereby they would have come and gathered together on the day of Pentecost in the temple courts to pray, and for Jesus' disciples in particular, they were there to wait. And third, and and this is more of just an inference from the Scriptures as a whole and not anything specific to this text, but the the temple itself was a partial fulfillment of what was anticipated at Sinai when God gave the law. And we've already said that by the time that uh, the apostles were gathered here, there were significant connections between Pentecost and Sinai. And, and then what we actually see happen here, there are, there's overlap in what, how Sinai is described in Exodus and how Pentecost is described, or rather not Pentecost, but the, the pouring out of the Spirit is described in Acts 2. Uh, there are things like wind, fire, and voices that overlap in these stories. So Luke doesn't make it explicit here. But what seems to be happening is that there is a renewal of the temple through a reconstituting of God's people under the realm and reign of the ascended Christ. So it seems that they are most likely in the temple. But however you take it, whether the disciples are in some large meeting place that isn't the temple or it is the temple, what they're doing, they are waiting for the Spirit. And this is how Luke describes the arrival of the Spirit. He identifies four things that happened in the place where the disciples were. One, he says that there was a rushing, a sound of rushing wind that filled the house where they were sitting. Two, he he describes a sight of divided tongues as of fire that appeared and rested on each of them. Three, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And four, they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there are a lot of questions that come to mind when you read this and then when you read the, the following verses. But, but I want to ask, what is the, what's the bigger question that we need to ask here? Because of what Luke has been doing in, in not only this book, but also in his gospel, we need to ask, what is the significance of the coming of the Spirit and the, the kingdom of God? And there are two primary things worth noting about this connection between the Spirit and the kingdom of God that I want to do here. First, God's kingdom, we see, includes people from every nation under heaven, And second, God's kingdom is realized as God builds His temple through uniting sinners to Jesus Christ, who is the true temple, and He is expanding its borders to the ends of the earth. And so, 
as we move into the, the rest of these verses, we're going to unpack what's happening here with those two things principally in mind. So look with me in the second place, verses 5 through 14, where we see the Jews and their perplexed response to the arrival of the Spirit and the things that were going on. Now, in order to understand what's happening here, we have to pay very careful attention to what Luke actually says. And the first thing to observe is that the disciples, they are speaking human languages here in Acts 2. The disciples, it says, it says they spoke in other languages. And those who heard them speak understand them in their own, they understand them as their own languages, in their own dialects. There's debate about, you know, this, some have said this is a, they're speaking an, an intelligible, ecstatic language. Um, there was some miracle of healing or of hearing going on where people can understand, but Luke is clear. They spoke and they were heard. What they heard was what was spoke. And they were so so they're speaking in other tongues, but that sort of raises the question, well, what are these other tongues? And again, like I said, with the place where these things occur, it's actually a, it's very difficult to be dogmatic about what these other tongues were, what these languages were. There are two, I find two explanations to be most likely. First, Luke is either describing this, that the Spirit enables the disciples to speak languages that they had not previously learned and did not already know, languages represented by these various nations introduced in verses 9 through 11. And it's a variety of them. We don't know what the languages were exactly. Uh, even if we name some of them, ultimately, it's languages that the disciples didn't know, and so it's a miraculous, uh, it's a miracle of speech that occurs here in the first explanation. But it is important to argue it is still human languages spoken here. A second explanation argues that since these nations uh, all represent the the diaspora, the the Jews that had been scattered uh, to the four corners of the earth, as it were in the exile, we actually can have some degree of confidence in knowing what the languages were and what the other language is that they're being contrasted with. So hang with me here for a minute. In 586 BC, Babylon destroyed Jerusalem and carried most of uh, those that didn't die into exile. Some returned to Jerusalem, however, um, 70 years later, with Nehemiah and others to rebuild the, the city and the temple. Many did not. They established, those who didn't return, they established synagogues in their places, their cities, the places where they lived, and they became a part of the culture where they lived. Though they still made regular returns to Jerusalem for the appointed feast when they were able. So Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and non-Jews who had converted to Judaism, the proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. At this time, there was three likely candidates for the language that each of them, that any given people in those places would have spoken. Aramaic, Greek, or Latin. Uh, Aramaic was certainly uh, a, a kind of the language of the day. Uh, previously, with Alexander the Great, Greek had, had become 
uh, a main staple in, in people's communication. That's why the New Testament was written in Greek, and those from Rome and other places would have speak, spoken Latin. So if you have those three, the languages are called other because they're being compared with Hebrew, which there's good evidence to say that Hebrew, while it was in normal conversation, largely had fallen out of use, but it was still considered the high or sacred language of temple feast. So the disciples, therefore, who likely had, you know, these 120 disciples of Jesus may likely have had various backgrounds. They're said to be Galileans, but the people mocking, they say they're also filled with new wine. So they they may not all be from Galilee. They're probably just connecting them with the man from Galilee, Jesus. So they're, they're speaking their own languages. And, and so the Jews present hear them speaking in their mother tongues instead of the proper feast language of Hebrew, and they assume they're drunk. They have inappropriately thrown off social customs. So the miracle in this case is that the Spirit emboldens them to overcome social conventions, social customs, and to proclaim the mighty works of God in the common language of the people. I know I just spent a lot of time on that. I think it is important, but, but whichever of those two or variations of those two interpretations you take, it's a miracle of speech, they're speaking languages they didn't know, or it's a miracle of boldness where they're speaking in their common tongue instead of what was expected of them at the time. What is the point? Because neither one, both have problems, both you can poke holes in either of them. But what is the point? And the point seems to be this. To understand the scattering of tongues at Pentecost, we need to understand the other scattering of tongues that occurs in the Bible. Babel. Craig Keener, he describes this connection well. He says, God scattered nations at Babel for trying to deify themselves, paralleling Adam's revolt and his expulsion from the garden. By contrast, the disciples at Pentecost are waiting for their Lord, who has ascended into heaven, to send them the Spirit. In Genesis, God descended and scattered tongues to prevent unity. In Acts, the Spirit descends and scatters tongues to create multicultural unity. The point of the speaking in tongues at Pentecost is also very closely connected with what Jesus says to his apostles in Acts 1.8. Right? They asked him about the restoration of the kingdom to Israel, and he tells them, that the arrival of the Spirit at Pentecost would begin the witnessing that was to take place in Jerusalem, and it foreshadows what was to be, a witness that would extend to every nation under heaven, which we see demonstrated throughout the rest of this book. And if you, if you look at a map of, of the area and you see these places named on it, and you see all the arrows, how they all came in to Jerusalem for Pentecost, it's amazing to see that this, the whole area is just flooded with arrows pointing into Jerusalem at this perfect time for the gospel to begin to spread. So the point here, the point of Acts 2, is that the scattering that had taken place at Babel has been reversed. 
You know, other places in Scripture, namely uh, 1 Corinthians 14, Paul connects the speaking of foreign tongues with God's judgment against unbelieving Israel. In Acts 14, Paul quotes Isaiah 28, and he makes clear that the proclamation of the oracles of God in other tongues was a sign against Israel who had rejected the Messiah. So the confusion of languages at Babel and the scattering of God's people in exile, in, at Pentecost, when the Spirit comes, it's all reframed by the coming of the Spirit, which is evidenced by the disciples speaking in these other tongues. And is a sign of judgment against unbelieving Israel, and is a marker of the inclusion of peoples from all over the world into God's kingdom. As they speak a plurality of languages, is a beautiful tapestry to the glory of the God of all grace. And so there is a judgment rendered at Pentecost. Those who are in Christ, with Christ, receive His Spirit to include people from all over the world, but those who reject Him, there is an exclusion, and a judgment, and a confusion that's brought upon them. And so that's, that's the confusion in verses 5 through 13. Look with me now in verses 14 through 21 where we see Peter address the crowds. And he says negatively, he explains to them what these things don't mean. He says, they're not drunk. He says it's way too early in the day. We've, we've gathered for prayer at 9 a.m. These people are not drunk. But then, he positively explains what it does mean. And I'll make a few observations about just the first part of his sermon here. His quotation of Joel. I want to mention one other Old Testament text that has significant background for, for understanding this coming of the Spirit. We'll offer some closing thoughts. We'll be done in the next week, Lord, when we're going to pick up, consider the rest of his sermon in response to the crowds, and we'll see how they respond to his sermon. And, uh, and we'll bring it all together next week as well. So here's what we'll say about Joel 2. Peter counteracts the confusion and the mockery of those who witnessed what happened by supplying them an accurate interpretation of these things and what they mean. He says they're not drunk. He says what it was, it was a fulfillment of the Old Testament's longing and expectation for God's Spirit to be poured out on all flesh. The men and women comprising the 120 disciples who received the Spirit and began to tell the mighty works of God in tongues familiar to the multilingual crowds present. This is what happened And this is what Moses longed for in Numbers 11, that all of God's people would prophesy, not just a select few of the elders. Joel foretells of this event in apocalyptic language and experiences. Blood, fire, uh, vapor of smoke in the heavens, the sun being turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. These words that he uses... They're used in order to convey cataclysmic, epical, eschatological events. It's capturing the the nature of what happens at Pentecost when the Spirit 
comes. And he says these things are fulfilled in the last days. He actually reframes what Joel says. Joel simply says, and afterwards. But Peter says explicitly, in the last days. The last days are upon us with the coming of Christ, his ministry, and the sending of his spirit. And it all culminates in verse 21, and all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is about bringing in people into the fold, bringing into the kingdom of God. Those who call upon the name of the Lord, the Lord Jesus will be saved. Those who do not, even as we saw in, from Joel 2, uh, when we read it earlier, that there is an exclusion taking place. But there's also another text that, that at least under, underlies this, or it, or it gives us clarity to what's going on. It, it, may, not like, it may not be explicitly in, in Peter's mind, but it's one that we need to consider. And it's Ezekiel 36 and 37. In Ezekiel 36 and 37, God, uh, through Ezekiel, prophesies that God would send His Spirit upon His people, and He would thereby cleanse them from all their uncleanness and their idolatry, that he would cause them to walk in his ways and he would reunite his divided people as one house where we're told that God would set his sanctuary in their midst forever. Ezekiel 37:27 says this, my people shall my dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. And so this has massive implications for how we understand the change in temple because just a few years after this, the temple is completely destroyed by the Roman Empire in 70 A.D. So we have to understand what's taking place here from the Old Testament to the New, culminating in the destruction of the temple. So where is the temple now? Patrick Schreiner says this, he says, Pentecost also symbolized the establishment of the new temple because those gathered received the presence of God. In Ezekiel, God's Spirit departed from the temple, and in Ezra, it did not return. Now the Spirit descends again. The new era is here. So the temple is no longer just a physical building that the people had to gather around in order to commune with God as His covenant people, but the temple is now Christ and all who are joined to Him by faith who have the Spirit indwelling them. And this is all helps us to understand a little bit with some clarity the, the description that Luke gives. The sound of rushing wind, the sight of fire. These, these are things that are connected with the presence of God in the Old Testament. Fire is a regular image in the Old Testament Scriptures for God's presence. Think the burning bush with Moses or the pillar of fire where God led Israel through the wilderness. Or think about the idea of wind and spirit. In fact, in both Hebrew and in Greek, the word translated spirit can also be translated as breath or as wind. And so at the most basic level, what is this all about? If you don't take much of anything else away, I hope you take this away. What this is about is that as he promised, God has made his dwelling place with man. It's been, I read it somewhere this week that you could summarize the ministry of Christ as securing 
in pouring out his spirit on his church. Securing the spirit for the church and giving the spirit to the church. And that's what he's done and that's what we witness here. So, in closing then, a few things to consider. There's much more that could be said, possibly should be said. I'm sure you'll tell me about it afterward if there is. A couple questions here. One, can, can this be repeated? I think this is an important question. Can Pentecost be repeated? And to be clear, if you're not sure of where this, what, how this debate goes, it revolves around whether or not the, 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 this baptism of the Spirit, the, the speaking of tongues, and all the things that take place here, is it a repeatable event that should be pursued by Christians and churches throughout church history? As recently as, as last month, right, uh, Asbury University, we see, we've seen people connecting what happened there with, with Pentecost and the outpouring of the Spirit and, and all of these things. And so I, I'm not commenting on, on what happened there. That's for another time or place. But when we think about what happened at Pentecost, should we expect these things to be repeated in our lives? Well, the simple answer is no, not like this. Pentecost is not a repeatable event. We'll see this a little bit clearer next week as well in the rest of Peter's sermon. But Pentecost and the pouring out of the Spirit is the final event in the saving, redemptive act of the Lord Jesus. Richard Gaffin helpfully explains, I quoted him earlier, he says this, Pentecost is definitive on the level order of Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. So in other words, if Christ's life, death, and resurrection are non-repeatable, so is Pentecost. It is once for all. We'll see this again because the question comes up when you get to Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 19, when you see uh, very similar things taking place, and we'll, we'll answer that question then. But for now, what I want to say this is that Pentecost is an event far more concerned with what we call the Historia Salutis rather than the Ordo Salutis. So it's far more concerned with the accomplishment of salvation than it is with the application of salvation. It's about the resurrected and the now ascended Christ and his right and prerogative to pour out his spirit upon his church. It is an end times eschatological fulfillment of God's promise to make his dwelling place with man. So understood in this way, as we've said, Pentecost is no more repeatable in the church age than the resurrection or the ascension of Christ. But what this means for us is that it doesn't mean that it has no application for us. What it means is that for us, now in the new age of the Spirit having come and been poured out, the Spirit shall never be taken from God's people. He shall never leave us, and therefore, according to Jesus in Matthew 28, Christ shall never leave us either. So where does this leave us? Where does, Christ won't leave us, but where does this sermon leave us? On the one hand, we see that the Spirit's arrival at Pentecost means that God's kingdom involves the restoration of God's people. Jews and Gentiles are united in God's kingdom. 
and as Christ gives His Spirit to all who follow Him. And we see it beginning here in Acts 2. We see Pentecost, I'll I'll use the word extended in Acts 8, in Acts 10, and the loose ends are tied up in Acts 19. The book of Acts recounts the gospel going to the ends of the earth, the, the fulfillment of what Jesus commissions His disciples to do in Acts 1.8. But we also see that God's kingdom, under the reign of the now resurrected and exalted Christ, that His kingdom, His indwelling presence, His Spirit, permanently indwells His people, His church, His temple forever. I think it was last week I quoted Octavius Winslow about praying, expectant praying. I want to quote him again here. And this, I'll do this in closing. He says this, My friends, whose temple are you? A solemn question. Does God or Satan dwell in you? Christ or Belial? Light or darkness? You cannot serve two masters. You cannot entertain two opposite guests. You are living either for God or for Satan. You are traveling either to heaven or to hell. Which? On your bended knees before God, decide. And may the Lord, the Spirit, renew you by His grace. And if renewed, make you a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the Master's use and prepared unto every good work. And pray that that would be the case for all of us. And there it is, the invitation. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, if you have not followed Him, I pray that you would do so. And for the rest of us, may God continue to sanctify us and make us fit and prepared for every good work as His people and as the building blocks, the the the. the living stones joined together in His temple, knit, uh, joined to Christ who is the cornerstone.